You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. So if we haven't met, uh, let me just introduce myself and say hi. It's great to have you here with us today. And uh, we are working our way through a section of Scripture where we are looking at the lives of Elijah and Elisha. And uh, these two prophets, Elijah, went to be with the Lord last week. Well, not really last week, but we talked about it last week. Uh, It was much longer than that. It was almost 3,000 years ago. But we talked about it last week. And uh, now we are on to Elisha. And today I want to talk about the theme which I think... uh, with a thing which shows up in this chapter, and it's this idea, where do you turn in times of trouble? When life is difficult, when the heat is on, when the pressure is squeezing you, where do you go? Oftentimes people have used the illustration of a sponge and said, you know, if you have a sponge and you squeeze it, Whatever's in the sponge is what will come out the bottom of the sponge. So if the sponge is absorbed water and you squeeze it, water's going to come out. Now, if you have used the sponge to wipe up your little one's milk spill, which covered the table and the floor and in the hallway and going into a full stream out into the streets and flooding your neighbors is what it feels like sometimes. But if you have used the sponge to clean up the milk mess, then when you squeeze the sponge... Water doesn't come out, but milk comes out. Why? Because when you squeeze the sponge, whatever's in the sponge is what comes out. And so it is with pressure in life. Whenever difficulties come, whatever's inside of us is revealed. You may have heard it said that pressure reveals the person. But today's text, and really the, the scope of the Scripture overall teaches this, that pressure reveals the person and the person's God. Because when we are squeezed, we find out whom whom we really trust in. We find out where we really run for help. We find out not what our confessed God is, not who our God is when we're hearing a beautiful song about the faithfulness of God on a Sunday morning, but who we believe in when we're squeezed. That reveals our true God. And we're going to see today that in times of trouble, We want to run to the Lord Jesus, for he is the one and only true God and the one who delivers us from all our troubles. Where do we go in trouble? Okay, well, we're going to read this chapter. I'm going to read it in three sections. The first section is the setup section. And if you're not in trouble right now, well, you are in the setup phase because it's coming and uh, you're holding a number. You just don't know what that number is and when you're going to be called, but it's coming. So this is the setup phase for the trouble that lands on uh, the three kings uh, in this section. So read with me Second uh, Kings 3 beginning in verse 1 uh, as we read God's holy word to us. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel, and he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? And Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the chapter begins by telling us there's a new king in Israel, and his name's Jehoram. Now, if you're reading the NIV, it says Joram. So it's the, it's the same name, but it can be translated Jehoram or Joram. And I'll just pronounce it with the ESV, which is Jehoram. And there's this new king. And we find out right away that he is the son of Ahab, who is the most wicked king in the history of Israel up to this point. He married the foreign wife, Jezebel, and together they are, uh, they are a team of wickedness because they have uh, incorporated Baal worship in Israel among the people of God. And so this is, uh, Ahab did that. This is his son. Now when Ahab died, his firstborn became the king. His name was Ahaziah. We read about him in chapter one. He's the guy who fell through the lattice and ended up dying. But now when he dies, then Jehoram comes uh, to rule and reign. And the first thing we learn about him is his religious policy. We find out right off the bat, bat, verse two, that he was evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, that's the first description uh, that that he did. Rather, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Though not like his father and mother, he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. So his father worshipped Baal. He had this large pillar, and Jehoram removed that, which is fantastic. However, he didn't destroy it. Uh, That happens in, I think, chapter 10 when a a new king later down the road named Jehu comes and he destroys the pillar. And it's a wonderful picture. He sort of removed Baal worship out from its central place, but he still allowed it. He still allowed it. So he may not have worshipped Baal himself, that's good, but he still did what was evil in the sight of the Lord because he kind of propagated the way Jeroboam acted when he was king over Israel. Jeroboam set up two golden bulls to be worshipped. So he worshipped the God of the Bible, whose name is Yahweh, one of his names. He worshipped the God of the Bible, Yahweh, but he also allowed for statues and idolatry and worshipping God. And, you know, he was a little bit more like today, a little bit more tolerant of many forms of worship. And yet that is being double-minded, and that is not being committed to Yahweh, who demands that he be worshipped alone. And so we have... uh, Evidently, this guy, Jehoram, is like Jeroboam. He kind of is soft, and he's allowing people to worship however they want, though he did remove this one pillar. Uh, So he is not, the text says, he is not as evil as his father and mother. That's a very low bar because his father is called the most evil guy. It's like saying, uh, I am the tallest of the hobbits. That is good, but, uh, but that's a low bar to be measuring uh, generally. That is not the standard. The standard is not his parents. The standard is the holiness of God. So he's a compromised king. 
compromised king. And we're going to see what happens when a double-minded king gets into trouble. Well, next we find out about Misha. He's the, uh, he's the king of Moab, and they are a vassal uh, state to Israel. What does that mean? Well, it means that he owes tribute or tax to the king. So Misha has to pay uh, basically 200,000 sheep or sheepskins each year to the king. And, and what does he get for that taxation? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but he probably gets some kind of protection or some land or he receives something uh, in return uh, for the taxation of this tribute. So when Ahab dies, this guy in Moab, a foreign nation, this guy in Moab says, Misha, I'm not going to pay the tribute anymore. Ahab's gone. I'm not paying taxes to Israel. And so Jehoram says, we'll see about that. I will come with an army and enforce, uh, you know, taxation. I will come and uh, do all kinds of destruction to you and to your land. And so he goes out and he puts together a coalition, starting with the king of um, Judah, who is Jehoshaphat. So at this time in Israel's history, there are two groups. There's Israel and there's the southern kingdom called Judah, the tribe of Judah. Now, it's all Israel, but they're divided at this time, and only the big group is called Israel, the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is Judah. But it is the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is, where, the, where ultimately the place of the, the, the temple is and the worship is, and ultimately the king of David's line is Jehoshaphat. So it's really happening in Judah. That's the place, ultimately, um, but... Uh, but he says to Jehoram, I will come with you. My people is your people. Uh, I'll go to war with you. And so they decide to go, and they're going to go through, uh, they're going to go through Edom. And here's what happens when they go through Edom. So that was the setup. Now comes the trouble, verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. If I could insert here, they pick up another king on the way because Edom, the king of Edom, is probably a vassal to Jehoshaphat. So he owes tax and tribute to him, so he probably feels an obligation to help out. So the king of Edom, three kings. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your mother, your father. I'm sorry, the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom Israel were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. Now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but the stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink you, your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. 
he will also give the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. So what happens? Well, they're marching. They're going around this circuitous pathway. They march for seven days, and uh, then they run out of water. That's the trouble. And when they run out of water, we immediately get a window into Jehoram's soul. He's being squeezed. And what does he say? How does he respond when there is no water and everybody's going to die? All the animals, all the people are going to die of thirst. Verse 10, he says, alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. He says, God's just going to kill us. God just brought us out here. Now, if you read the text, they never inquired of the Lord before this whether they should go. It was Jehoram that decided he would go, uh, you know, get Moab in a headlock and get what's owed them. So he's saying, God's going to kill us all. Look at what he's doing to us. There's no reference to the fact that maybe we didn't bring enough water. There's no reference to the fact that maybe we took a long, circuitous route for some reason, that if we'd taken another route, maybe we could have done it quicker and the supplies would have lasted. No, this is all about God's fault. It's all blaming it on God. God's going to give the three of us to die to Edom. He's a double-minded man, and when the heat comes, this is how he responds. Philip Ryken, in his commentary about this book, writes the following. We have the quote for you here. He says, do we have that one? He says, what happens, thank you, to a half-hearted man in an emergency? Usually, unbelief triumphs. This is certainly what happened to King Jehoram. When the crisis came, he complained about God. Jehoram leaped to the gloomy conclusion that he was about to die. This response is all too familiar for people who only half believe in God. When trouble comes, they assume the worst. Jehoram was the kind of man who always blames God for his troubles. He had hardly given one thought to God during the whole week, but as soon as things started to go wrong, he took God to task. He held God responsible for bringing the kings together, leading them into the desert, and handing them over to their enemies. In saying this, Jehoram ascribed evil to the God of all goodness. When crisis comes, he blames God. This pattern of thinking is as old as humanity. Back in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned by eating the fruit and God comes to talk with them, what does Adam say when he is hiding from God and uh, he's asked if he ate the fruit? What does Adam say? He says, it was the woman that you gave me. She took the fruit and gave me to eat it. So rather than owning his sin, he said, why did I sin and eat the fruit? It's not her fault. It's your fault, God, for giving her to me, this sinful woman, right? So there is this, from the very beginning of humanity, there is this deflecting and blame shifting, blaming God for what goes wrong. Well, Jehoshaphat's impulse couldn't be any different. He responds completely differently. 
His response is, there's no water. We need a prophet. We need somebody to come give us the word of the Lord. We need God's perspective on this. Notice that's his first impulse. He doesn't say, let's send out search parties and divide up and somebody, everyone go look for a source of water. Maybe there's a stream, maybe there's a, a, a spring we don't know about around here. So let's divide up and go find that. He doesn't start with that. He certainly doesn't blame God. He leans into God. He says, we are in trouble. There is no water. We're going to all die. So we better look to the Lord. We better go to Yahweh and ask. So who can bring us the word of the Lord? He's not walking around with a Bible in his lap like you are or an app on his phone. He's not walking around with the word of God. They need uh, the prophet to bring them a word. And so Jehoram doesn't say anything in the text. He doesn't say anything. His assistant, one of his servants, says, hey, Elisha is here. It's very telling that one of the servants has to tell Jehoshaphat that Jehoram isn't even leaning in and saying, yeah, let's go get Jehoshaphat, I mean, let's go get uh, Elisha. So his servant has to bring this up, and he says, he's here, and evidently Jehoshaphat knows him, says, he's good, he's solid, he'll bring the word of the Lord, go get him. And when they go get him, he could not be any more direct with the king of Israel. He says, what do I have to do with you? Why are you calling me? You don't believe in God. You don't serve God. You don't care about the word of God. He says, why don't you go to your father and mother's prophets, the prophets of Baal? Why don't you ask Baal to help you out of this? And then he really, the king, Jehoram, really makes this bold response. You think he would kind of cower and humble himself. Oh, wow, okay, I'm getting called out here. Verse 13, he says, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. No, I'm not going to the prophets of Baal. I'm going to the prophets of Yahweh because Yahweh's about to kill us. He brought us out here. He's just hardened in his blaming of God. You would think when the known prophet of God says to him, calls him out and says, I don't have anything to do with you, he'd think he would humble himself and say, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. But no, he says, no, Lord's going to kill us. And since you're his prophet, we thought we would talk to you. And so he says, bring me a musician, and they start playing, and then uh, he gives a prophetic word. And he says to them two things. I'm going to do the light thing, God says. I'm going to bring you water, and I'm going to do something much greater than that, the heavy lifting. I'm going to take over Moab through you. You'll destroy their land. You'll take their cities. God is going to ultimately bless what they are doing. I'm going to give you water and winning. We could say you're going to get both of those. Well, the next morning comes, and so does the water. Now, the conclusion shows what ultimately happens. Verse 21. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, The Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. 
They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Harasheth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him some 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Okay, before we talk about that unusual ending, uh, let's talk about what happened in sort of the battle. So the next morning, water comes, and it's the provision of water that leads to victory. Because what happens is Moab, they gather all their, uh, anyone old enough who can fight, who can put on armor and be in the battle, they arm them, and they're, they're kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. And as the sun rises, no longer is there a dry stream bed, where Israel is, but water has covered it, so it's all a bunch of pools now. And as the sun rises, evidently the light of the sun gives off a sort of reddish glow or reddish look to the water, and so they assume it's blood. They assume that that what has happened, which we see happening several times in the Bible, they assume what is happening is that the three kings have started infighting that the, the, the troops of Jehoram, the troops of Jehoshaphat, and the troops of the king of Edom have gotten mad at each other. Something went wrong, and they start fighting against each other. They've killed so many people, the Moabites think. They've killed one another so many people that they've left a, a stream bed that is red. And so they say, Moab to the spoil. They assume they've killed each other. All we've got to do is go down and start stripping the bodies of anything valuable We're just going to grab the spoil for ourselves. They think, wow, we've won the battle. And so they rush down, and as soon as they rush down, the Israelites pop up and start defeating them in battle. It's amazing what what happens. And so they are taking the cities. They are cutting down the trees. They are... Uh, they're doing tremendous damage, putting stones in the field so that crops won't grow, all that kind of stuff. They're sort of decimating uh, the Moabites. And then Misha, the king of the Moabites, realizes that they are losing. And so now trouble is upon him. Jehoshaphat, he's already had trouble, no water. Jehoram, he's already had trouble, no water. Now Moab, the king of Moab, sees, verse 26, when the king of Moab saw the battle was going against him. Now he's in trouble. So what does he do? Well, the first thing he does is he leans on his strength. He gets 700 swordsmen, and he says, let's go to where they're weakest. It says he's going to try to break through the king of Edom, their troops, Edom's troops, probably the smallest group. So let's try to break through, but they can't break through. And then when they can't break through with their battle with swords, what do they do? It's something vile. It's horrendous. On the city wall, presumably in view of the troops, on the city wall, the king of Moab takes the crown prince or the the one who will be king, takes his son and kills him, sacrifices him on the wall, burns him, offers him as a burnt offering is what the text said. Now, this kind of grievous practice was not unknown in the ancient Near East. As a matter of fact, it was common enough 
that people offered human sacrifice, it was common enough that God warned his people, when you go into the land of Canaan around the Canaanites, do not embrace their practices. And he mentioned specifically one of their practices is human sacrifice. So what, what Misha is doing is he is believing that his God, who is Chemosh, the God of Moab, the land of Moab, he's believing that if he makes this tremendous sacrifice to his God, that his God will then act on his behalf. Now, what's unusual about this is when that happens, it it reads as if Israel has essentially won the war, but they're still at battle. What happens is it says after that, uh, verse 27, there came great wrath against Israel and they withdrew and returned to their land. So it sounds like there's wrath against Israel after this human sacrifice and they just sort of say, we're done and they leave having essentially probably gotten what they came for, but they leave. Now, what is this wrath against Israel? Well, it's certainly not God. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is not responding to the human sacrifice of a pagan and saying, yeah, okay, I'm going to judge my people because you killed your son. Absolutely not. Chemosh is not real. He's not going to bring wrath upon Israel. So it must not be vertical from a God. It must be horizontal. The wrath upon Israel must be the wrath that comes from the Moabite troops. It seems like what reasonably happened is they see their king do this vile, wicked act of sacrificing his son on the wall. They see that, and when they see the devotion of their king, evidently it rouses them to some type of fury so that they get a second wind and they come out and, you know, with great fury, start to attack Israel, and Israel says, we're done here, and they leave. That's what appears to happen. So how in the world is a story like this relevant to us in the year 2022 in Frisco, Texas, where we can relate to none of this? Uh, Though in some place in our country, the lack of water, we can probably relate a little bit to that, but we always know there's some water that we can get somewhere, right? So how do we relate to this? Are these just old stories from the Bible where if you're a skeptic, you say, these are just a bunch of old fables that kind of talk about God? Or if you're a believer, you say, these are historical accounts. But let's be honest, how does this really apply to my life? Aren't there passages of scripture we could be talking about today that are more relevant than this? Well, I actually think there's real application for us in this passage because it reveals something that is true of all of us. Crisis reveals our God. Crisis reveals our God. When we are desperate, what's really inside comes out. Desperation sort of uncovers our true spiritual commitments because I can stay all day, say all day I believe in Jesus, I'm committed to Jesus, I'm a disciple of Jesus, come hell or high water, I'm a follower of Jesus, no matter what happens. We can all say that, but the truth of that is not really borne out in a Sunday morning worship service in the comfort of this environment. It's really borne out when the squeeze comes in our lives. Think first of all about Jehoram in this story. Jehoram was double-minded, and when the pressure came on, Rather than look to God and trust him, he accuses God. Rather than saying, we need the Lord, he says, the Lord's killing us. He speaks ill of God's character. God's not going to destroy his people. 
He speaks evil against God. He doesn't reflect the truth of the Scripture. He doesn't reflect all that the Bible has told told us about the character of God and his relationship with his people, the loving God who cares for his people. He doesn't believe that because he is sort of double-minded, and in the moment of need, he, well, he loses it and misses it. One, One person wrote about this. He wanted to use the word of God in the moment, but not to submit to it long term. Okay, he says people like Jehoram view the word of God as something for emergency only, but not for normal days. So at the end of the day, he does get deliverance through God's word, but that's not really where he lives. I mean, he'll take it. If you're going to help me in battle, that's great. Whatever will take, help me, I'll go for it. He says, God is simply the airbag in the disasters of life, which you hope you never have to use. If that is your pattern, you may be placing yourself above the help of God's word. Some of us relate to God that way. God's the airbag of life. If I get in real trouble, if something I didn't see crashes into me, if something comes from the side, if I get rammed from behind, or if it's a head-on that I saw and just didn't really, you know, act quickly enough, God's my airbag. He will rescue me in my time of need. And the Bible certainly speaks of God as a rescuer. But the Bible and God is not our airbag. The, Bi- the Bible is our daily path of discipleship. It's not just where we go when we are in trouble. It's, it's, the Bible describes itself as a light to our path. It directs our path. The Bible tells us how to live because it reveals God to us, shows us what a God-honoring life is like, and by the Holy Spirit empowers us to live that life. The Word of God, God's direction, enables us to live lives for his glory. God created each of us. We prayed this earlier. God created each of us as image bearers and called us to live for him. He gives us gifts. He gives us abilities. He gives us uh, passions. He gives us opportunities. He gives us relationships. He puts us in locales so that we may then live out our life for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. And here's the thing. We will never figure out how to do that on our own. It's, it's not natural to know how to take what God has given me and live it for his glory. What's natural is to take all that God has given me, resources, abilities, opportunities, relationships, and leverage them for my own good. That's what comes natural. What comes natural is to put me at the center of the universe. What, what comes unnatural to each of us, unnaturally to each of us, is to take all that God has given us and say, I am but a manager of all of this to use for the glory of God. We need God's word daily to direct us to live our lives, to know our God, to be confident in Christ on a regular basis. The reality is that we don't just need him in trouble. We need him today when we are training for trouble. That's where everybody, if you're not in trouble, everybody is training for the next tribulation. Everybody is in training for the next persecution, for the next difficulty, for the next disappointment, for the next grief. You say, wow, I'm glad I came to church today to hear those exciting promises. 
But what's to happen is God is using, wants to work his character by his spirit to change the way we relate to trouble, to change the way we think about trouble, to, to transform the way we view and live our lives so that when trouble does come, our impulse is to go to God because that's where we've been going every day before the trouble came. He's wanting to change us so that we can walk through trouble with confidence and trust in him and can, be a glor- can glorify him and be a witness for him. And, and, and when the squeeze is on, what comes out of us is the character of God, the fruit of the Spirit, because the Spirit is in us. So when we're squeezed, we want love and joy and peace and patience to come out. We want faith towards God to come out of us. Well, Misha, how about him? He's just the pagan king over there, you know, not wanting to pay his 200,000 sheep for a tribute anymore. He's, uh, he's over there in Moab worshiping Chemosh, and when trouble comes to him, the first thing he does is reasonable. Uh, he just gets his swordsman and said, let's go do damage over here. He doesn't call out to the God of Yahweh, the God Yahweh, because he doesn't even believe Yahweh, doesn't even believe the God of the Bible. So the first thing he does is marshal his own strength, and that doesn't work. So the next thing he does is he resorts to worshiping a false god, an idol, a god replacement. His god is Chemosh, and he offers up his son to get what he wants. That's how idolatry works. Idolatry is going to a substitute for God whereby we coerce or manipulate the god into giving us what we want. Idols are false gods that demand from us a costly allegiance, in this case, his own son. But they only bring grief in the end. I mean, if this guy, Misha, is even the most base of a father, at the end of this, he's left with grief. He's left with grief. He did this for his idol. He did this for his false god. But he will have regret and sorrow the rest of his life because he lost his son. Only brings grief. But compared to the Lord, the Lord gives freely. Our God lives. That's what the story teaches. Our God lives and speaks and acts by grace, not by bribery. He doesn't act by bribery. Biblical faith is life-giving. It's relief when we think about the torturous costs of trusting in various God substitutes. Well, you say, this is so primitive. Uh, I don't worship Chemosh. I mean, even if, if I said every head bowed and every eye closed, lift your hand and admit if you're a Chemosh worshiper. There's not any in the room, okay? Nobody here is worshiping Chemosh, okay? Even if you could privately reveal it, it's probably not happening. But we all know what it is to worship a God substitute. In other words, where do I run When trouble comes, when the pressure's on, when the heat is on, when I'm feeling the anxiety and the stress, where do I run? Do I run to God or do I run to a substitute? Maybe not as primitive, maybe not as wicked on the surface as sacrificing one's own child, to be sure. But still, we do run when the pressure is on because we believe that the idol will bring us relief. We're deceived And we think this escape will bring me relief from the sort of existential pain I feel, from the the grief I feel, from the emptiness I feel, from the depression I feel, from the hopelessness I feel. 
from the anger I feel, whatever it is inside that I'm running to find relief. I heard somebody say, idols are where we go when God is not enough. Where do we go? We got all kinds of escapes. Some of us run to eating. I'm not talking about eating three squares a day. I'm talking about we go to food, you know, eating too much food to just fill ourselves because somehow it makes the pain go away. We even have a name. We call it comfort food. It brings me comfort. There's nothing wrong with eating some fried chicken for lunch today or something that's a comfort, whatever a comfort food is. I don't know. It's nothing wrong with that, having that for your meal. But when I run to food as a comfort for the ache in my soul, that's idolatry. Or we run to alcohol. We even joke about it. Hey, like, man, it's been a bad week, you know, pour me, pour me a drink because that'll take the edge off. That'll take the edge off or maybe more than take the edge off. Maybe we drink until the point that we forget what our problems are. Maybe we turn to drugs, even legitimate drugs, prescription drugs. Maybe we turn to them and abuse them, take too much to sort of check out so that we don't feel the difficulty. Maybe we escape to porn because for a a brief amount of time, it takes us away from the problems of our world and takes us into a land of fantasy where we can have whatever or whomever we want. Maybe it's an entertainment binge. There's nothing wrong with Netflix. But when I binge for hours on end to escape uh, the pain that's in my heart and to, to be distracted from the responsibilities that I have, well, that's a different story. Maybe it's spending I heard some people spend in Frisco. I don't know if that's true, but there's a rumor that's out there. We live in the land of spending, and if you don't have it, you put it on credit. And some of us, that when the, when the difficulty comes, it's like, you know, there's an ache in my soul, but there's no ache that a new pair of shoes won't help. At least take the pain off, the edge off the pain. We gamble. We immerse ourselves in video games. We immerse ourselves in social media. Because it takes us away from the problem. Man, last year, this is a bit of an embarrassing confession for maybe, but last year when the pandemic came, uh, that's when I first heard about So I used to be in a lot of social media and then kind of pared back. But that's when I heard TikTok had come out. And, man, I got on TikTok for a week, and I'm telling you what. Now, this, this will probably lower your uh, esteem for your pastor it was like crack cocaine. I mean, I, that is the best social media platform ever created, and I, I could live on there. I mean, after a week, and I wasn't just, you know, I'm not watching people just do dances or whatever, and I didn't post, so there's no dances of me on TikTok. But there was a lot of humor. I keep running to show my wife, look at this joke, look at this thing, whatever, you know. Man, I'm telling you, I, I could forget about everything and just live in, in that world. So maybe that's not your deal. So I did it a week, and I said, I'm done. I can't do this. So I'm done. I, didn't have, I don't have enough godly character. That's my suggestion. I do not have the character to avoid something like that once I get into it. I just want to do it all the time. So if you can use it uh, in, in, in moderation, it's great. Social media is great if you can use it in moderation and glorify the Lord through your use. But when it becomes an escape, it's an idol. Where do you go when the squeeze comes? Well, Jehoshaphat, when the stress comes upon him, Jehoram despairs. God's going to kill us. Jehoshaphat says, we need the Lord. Let's get the word of the Lord. His first impulse is Godward. 
When trouble comes, do you know what Jehoshaphat does? He humbles himself. He is a king. Nobody tells the king what to do. The king tells everybody what to do. And he says, I'm the king, but I'm humbling myself. I need somebody to tell me what to do. I need somebody to bring me the word of God. Where's Elisha? Bring the word of the Lord. He puts his trust in God. He listens to God. When trouble comes, he humbles himself. And the text doesn't say this, but I think we could presume that that's because it's not a foreign concept to him. It's foreign to Jehoram to turn to the Lord. It's not, it's not foreign. It's not foreign to Jehoshaphat. He looks to the Lord. Where is the trouble in your life today? And where, and what would turning to God look like? It might look like Jehoshaphat by starting with asking for help. He's got more power and more influence and is more successful and likely more gifted. He's a king of God's people than any of us in the room. And yet he humbles himself and says, I need the Lord. And says that publicly before the other kings and everybody who's watching. We need God. I need God. So starting to turn to the Lord might mean starting by asking for help from a friend or your spouse or a godly person Help me, direct me, pray for me, direct me to the word. Where do I need to read? How can I apply God's word in my life? Finally, we have to address one particular detail in the passage that if you were thinking about it, uh, or it's not a detail, it's really the overall drift of the passage. If you're thinking about it, it's like, wait a minute, that undermines everything you're saying. And it's simply this. Did you notice that Jehoram who is compromised, double-minded, syncretistic in his religion, meaning he worships Yahweh and others like, Jeho- like uh, uh, previously had been done in Israel. Did you notice that this guy, the bad guy, wins in the end? Actually, he gained more than anyone because Jehoshaphat, he's in Judah. He's not getting 200,000 sheepskins a year because of this battle. But, but Jehoram is. Jehoram's not godly. Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord. Jehoram prospers. The wicked guy that blames God prospers. The wicked guy that does not look to God prospers in the story. So does that not undermine everything that I've just been saying? I was reading a commentary this week from Dale Ralph Davis, and I thought he explained this. He nailed it in a way that opened up for me. Uh, Here's a quote. We have it for you. Dale Ralph Davis said, Some have been muttering that this idolatrous rascal Jehoram doesn't deserve such benefits. Of course he doesn't. But notice why he received them. Because of Jehoshaphat, the king of David's line in Judah. Jehoram received these benefits because of another And it is the exact same with you. If you receive any benefits from God, it is because you stand next to the Davidic king, Jesus, the descendant of David and of Jehoshaphat. You are in exactly the same position as Jehoram. You don't deserve heaven's crumbs, but receive massive mercies only because of Jesus. The Davidic king stands beside you. It is only because Jesus stands next to us that we receive the blessings of God. It's only because Jesus is beside us that we are delivered 
from our troubles, or as we walk through the difficulties of them, he is with us, comforting and strengthening and using all of those troubles for our good, the Bible tells us. He uses them for his glory and for our good. Jesus, the Savior, and Savior, by the way, means rescuer. Jesus, the rescuer, rescues us from our sins through his death and resurrection, making us a new creation, inviting us into his new creation, uniting us with himself, with him so that all our sins are forgiven, and we are on a pathway to be with him, certainly in the new heaven and the new earth. How glorious is that? He rescues us from our sin, but the Bible says if he's rescued you from your sin, then you know he will rescue you from all the other things, that he will ultimately use them for his glory and for our good. So we are blessed because of Christ, even with our imperfect faith, even with our small faith, even with our weak faith, as we turn to the Lord, he uses that for our good. So when trouble comes, you can look to yourself, get your 700 swordsmen and see how that works out for you. You you can just go off and do your own thing like Jehoram goes into battle, just trusting himself and then blames God when everything tanks in his life. You can look to idols and God's substitutes. There's a lot of escapes, endless escapes out there when the pressure is on. Or you can turn to Jesus in your time of trouble. You can turn to him before your time of trouble because today is the day of training for trouble. So the more we look to him, the more we trust in him, the more the goodness of Jesus who blesses those in Christ amazingly, even when we don't deserve it, that that Jesus, that grace, that kindness leads us to repent and trust him in our lives. That's what he's called us to do. Look to him and trust him. Be shaped and formed by him every day through his word so that when trouble comes, our first response is we need God. We need his word. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.